What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with Washington Post. I am joined on the other line, as always, by Michael Pina of SB Nation. Michael, we have so much to get through today. I'm really juiced to do it, frankly. We've got the NBA trade deadline to preview, which is coming up on Thursday. We have so many all-star storylines to get caught up on as well. But I do think we should start first, just real briefly, with the recap of Friday night's, uh, I don't know if you want to call them festivities or, or celebrations of life, uh, for Kobe Bryant uh, here in Los Angeles. Now, obviously, the Lakers were hosting the Portland Trailblazers on Friday. Portland got the win thanks to 48 points from Damian Lillard. Just an absolutely ruthless performance from him. But, you know, obviously, the story of the night uh, was that pregame ceremony. I mean, there was chapters to this thing, right? There was musical tributes. There was like a six-minute long video where, you know, Bryant's voice really came through uh, time and time again. And then, of course, there was the speech from LeBron James, uh, you know, at center court where he was going on about Bryant's competitive nature, uh, about his relationship with his children, about his standing in M- NBA history. And of course, he was uh, saluting and, and paying tribute to the nine lives lost in the fatal helicopter crash in Calabasas last week. So Michael, with a few days to kind of decompress uh, and and mull things over, uh, you know, after Friday night, uh, what's your main takeaway uh, from that festivities? What did you, you know, think, or what was going through your mind as you were watching that that night? Yeah, I thought it was just beautifully done, uh, and you know, I came from I was at the uh, Nets Bulls game that night, so I hurried home. I had it on DVR, but I, I didn't miss a bunch, so I, I started. I, I, I geared up the DVR, and uh, I mean, I was uh, once again an emotional wreck, <laughs> and. It was very powerful. Um, I was not expecting LeBron to speak, and I thought that that he did a tremendous job. I thought Usher's performance was great. All the Kobe T-shirts, the video, as you alluded to, which included that that prophetic interview that he had with Chick Hearn, uh, where he says that he wants to play at least nineteen or, or or twenty years at least with the Lakers, which has just sent like chills down my spine watching it again. So. I thought it was it was beautiful, and I it was almost too much for like the pre, a prelude to a basketball game. Though you know, LeBron said that it, he did not think that this was a memorial. He thought it was a celebration, but it was it was just it was really it was really strong for something right before a basketball game. And the basketball once it started felt very secondary. Look, I think even Lakers haters can agree that this franchise has been so good for so long. Uh, even barring these last couple of years, which has obviously been a down period for that franchise, that there's basically no professional organization, at least in the NBA, that's better equipped to sort of hosting a night like this because they just have so much experience honoring greats, whether it's jersey retirements, the statue uh, unveilings. I mean, right on down the list, like if it really helps to have like 50 or 60 years of championships uh, behind you, uh, you know, when you're faced with this kind of a horrible situation uh, to be able to put it together on a very tight timeline uh, to have just the vision for how you, uh, you know, capture a player's entire career. And you're right, that video was just incredible. I mean, the young Kobe, uh, you know, moments and flashes were great. But like him dunking past Michael Jordan, you know, they, they definitely slipped that in there. Uh, him and Shaq celebrating the titles during the good days. Um, you know, the the jubilance uh, after the 2010 title, but also the pain, the jutted jaw uh, after he's uh, you know, dealing with the Achilles injury. I mean, they they covered an awful lot of ground, and it's just a reminder. Like, I mean, Kobe's 
career alone, like just his Lakers career, that could be a three-hour movie easily, right? I mean, there's so much material there. For them to hit all the right notes in that six-minute video was just incredible. And I, after watching it, I was like, I could watch another six-minute video and another six-minute video. We could just sit here all night and just watch a Kobe documentary, and that would be fine by me. And I think a lot of people in the, uh, the crowd felt the same way. Now, in terms of the scene outside the stadium, you know, bootleg T-shirts on every single corner paying uh, tribute to both Kobe and Gianna, uh, his 13-year-old daughter. There were thousands, and I would actually say tens of thousands, of tributes left in L.A. Live. Uh, I actually went back to see it on Saturday because they were about to clean it up, and I just wanted to see what the final version looked like. I mean, there was something like 10 or 15 giant whiteboards uh, you know, filled with uh, handwritten messages from fans. The flowers had actually stacked on top of the flowers on top of the flowers. So we had basically like three layers of uh, flowers and uh, basketballs and shoes that people had left on the ground. And then when you're just walking around within the LA Live Square, people have written messages on the ground itself, you know, RIP Mamba, you're the greatest to ever do it, and so on. Again, thousands of those messages written. Uh, some people had painted little tributes and left those. Tons of balloons, giant floral arrangements. Uh, someone brought in like a three-tiered uh, bookshelf, basically, with different uh, photos of Kobe that said, we'll love you always, and, and photos of Gianna as well. It was absolutely overwhelming. I saw like a seven-foot-tall teddy bear in one spot. Um, so the tributes both inside and outside the arena were just next level. And I kept, you know, every time I walked away from it, it just was bigger and bigger. I kept thinking like, how many people in the world could inspire this type of outpouring? Like, it's a very, very short list. And uh, I think it talks about his legacy with that franchise, but also within this uh, you know, LA area as a whole and everything else. Michael, I'm curious though, how did LeBron do? I mean, he was sort of one of the centerpiece moments of the entire tribute. Of course, he comes out onto the court wearing a 24 jersey, which was just jarring to see uh, with Brian's name on the back. Um, you know, after years of these guys sort of being pitted as rivals, right? Uh, of course, there's been uh, a, warm, a warming relationship between the two of them since LeBron's came to Los Angeles. But what did you think as he's stepping out there to center court, uh, with his little notes that he kind of dismissively, you know, tosses to the ground and then uh, speaks from the heart. What'd you think? Yeah, I mean, it was incredible. Um, I don't know how many people in the world could could do that, could walk to center court after such an emo emotional ceremony after the video uh, and speak like that so eloquently and so directly. Um <clears throat> You could tell he was nervous. I mean, he was pacing around the logo uh, and television cameras. I don't know if you saw the broadcast since, but they, you know, they caught him just completely broken down during the national anthem. So it was kind of a shock to me that he actually took the microphone and, and spoke afterwards. I didn't think he would be able to. I thought he would be overcome with emotion. Um I will say just the cynic in me, I just have to point out that, you know, the throwing away of the paper was clearly rehearsed. I mean, let's be let's be honest here. I mean, it's it's an effective tactic for public speakers that probably helped him overcome some nerves. And it definitely uh, uh, the purpose of it is kind of, to kind of make the audience connect with you in a way that they otherwise would not. So it was it was a little bit of showmanship. And I appreciated it because it was very effective. Um 
I I don't know how many people could have done that. I mean, I, I was thinking, I, I wasn't expecting him to speak. I wasn't really expecting anyone to speak. Uh, maybe, like, Magic Johnson was a person just because of his connection with the, the Lakers fan base and uh, obviously his connection with Kobe. But for, for LeBron to kind of step in there and fill, uh, momentarily fill a void felt by millions of mourners was just, uh, you got to tip your cap to him. Yeah, and I think it really helps lay the course for where this is going, right? Like kind of pulling things back together, trying to finish the season strong and kind of going forward as an organization. Someone needed to do that. Now, they could have easily done that entire pregame tribute without him and just, you know, use the video as the centerpiece. But I do think it, it helps kind of the what's next aspect of this conversation to have LeBron step forward as he did. I agree with you. I'm not totally sure the rhetorical device of the notes really worked. I don't know how well exactly <laughs> that went over in the building. But it was also interesting because LeBron was definitely cheered uh, for his message, but it wasn't like that crazy, raucous Kobe, Kobe, Kobe type of cheers that we heard at various points um, you know, throughout the night uh, that were more organic coming from the fans. And that's not a knock on LeBron in any way. It's just he's still feeling his relationship with the Lakers fans out, right? Like he wasn't there for 20 years. They don't remember him as the 17-year-old teenager. Uh, he hasn't even made the playoffs with the Lakers yet, right? And so uh, the timing is still a little bit awkward there in, in terms of that relationship. But I do think that uh, you know accepting that burden, going out to center court, uh, speaking eloquently like you described, um, and then also just paying tribute to a fellow competitor, a guy he has a lot of things in common with, right? Both MVPs, both champions, both Nike signature athletes, both global icons, both face, uh, you know, faces of the Lakers. I do think it helps just provide a little bit of uh, clarity uh, in terms of you know what a post Kobe uh, Lakers existence could look like for fans. But um, you know, I think that LeBron is just respected and not just full-heartedly loved uh, yet. And and I did think that that came through uh, even in his speech where the cheers were uh, strong, but not overwhelming uh, in that moment. Um, Michael, real quick before we move on, uh, I'm curious uh, for on the Blazers side of things, because as I mentioned, Lillard went off. I mean, 48 points. I came into that game expecting maybe LeBron would try to do a Kobe tribute by like chasing 60 points or something like that. And then I thought, oh, wow. What if we got dueling like 60 point efforts from LeBron and Damian Lillard where they're like going back and forth, uh, you know, shot for shot, trying to you know do their own little tributes to Kobe within the game. I mean, Lillard was just absolutely savage in that game. I mean, the three pointers, but also the finishes going to the basket, that crazy lefty finish in traffic, you know, dunking himself basically through three people uh, in traffic to, to finish that thing off. All of those highlights caused our guy Brandon from LA to email in and ask, is Damian Lillard the best point guard in the NBA right now? And obviously Lillard's been on a, a huge run here lately. I think three 50-point games in his last six appearances. So what do you say, Michael? Uh, does Lillard deserve that crown with Steph Cur Curry obviously out injured? Yeah, I mean, before I answer that, I just want to kind of second everything that you said about Dame and the streak that he's on. And, you know, what's really interesting to me is that uh, the Portland Trailblazers have the best offense in the NBA right now against top 10 defenses. 
And a lot of that is because of the performances that Dame has had uh, against the Lakers, against the Jazz. Uh, a, a couple nights later, uh, he's averaging 41.6 points and 9.3 assists in his last 10 games, shooting 50% from behind the three-point line, taking 12 threes a game. Like, right. I, this streak is just, it's, it's, uh, He's an inferno. And Michael, uh, so, he, he is not whining about the doubles either. I mean, this guy's getting trapped sometimes before he even gets to half court. I mean, it's the same stuff that Harden was frustrated with earlier this year. I mean, he's working incredibly hard to get whatever clean looks he can. He's pulling up from deeper than ever because, you know, he's like, if I have a clean look, I might as well take it. And then off the ball, you know, he's doing a lot of, you know, exerting a lot of effort. Uh, you know, to get himself into good spots away from defenses so that he can either catch and shoot or catch and attack quickly uh, because he's getting just, you know, hard doubles uh, 40 feet from the hoop. No, that's a great point. I mean, he's playing within the offense. Like, uh, Hassan Whiteside owes him dinner or should buy him, like, a Rolex or something because, like, Dame isn't forcing it. He's, you know, when he's blitzed, he just gives it up to Hassan on the slips, and Hassan is having is playing tremendous offensive basketball because of the attention that defenses are giving Dame. So, yeah, there is uh, no restaurant or watchmaker quality enough <laughs> to, to represent the debt that Hassan Whiteside owes Damian Lillard. But continue. Yeah. So, uh, I so addressing whether or not he's the best point guard in the NBA, I I think this is a very fascinating question because i feel like the concept of a point guard is always evolving and very fluid so like when i look at who's a point guard in the nba nba right now it's like luca is a point guard uh harden is a point guard lebron is a point guard uh, you mentioned Steph. I have him listed here as well, and I, I'd say he's obviously a point guard and uh, a better. I just have to say he's a better player than Dame, just because. Um, I mean, what Dame is doing right now is kind of what I expected Steph to do in this post KD, uh, uh, you know, season. Assuming he would have been healthy without Clay as well. So, but I mean, I'm not trying to take anything away from Dame. Uh, I think he's separated himself from the likes of, you know, Russell Westbrook and Kyrie Irving and Kemba Walker and yeah, you know, those whoever were, else you want to mention. Those were real debates kind of coming into the season. I mean, I, I remember, you know, in, in recent top 100s getting a lot of pushback over this idea that Dame is definitely better than Kyrie or, or Dame is, uh, you know, definitely better uh, than some of the other point guards that you mentioned, Westbrook and so forth. Because, you know, as recently as three or four years ago, he probably... Uh, was lower uh, on the uh, the pecking order or on the point guard ladder. Uh, I think at this point, you know, it's Steph who deserves a respect because he's done it in the postseason over and over again. Uh, and then Dame, in terms of guys who are like kind of point guard shaped that we would think of as like traditional, quote unquote, traditional point guards, even though they're both, you know, very right. scoring minded guys. Uh, now, you know, these point forwards definitely complicate the conversation, but I think other than Steph, in terms of the traditional type point guards, I would say Dame is next on the list. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, he's been terrific. And I don't really think he gets enough credit either for staying in Portland and never really, you know, verbalizing frustration to a degree that some other stars have. And, you know, Portland is a small market and they have history, but it's a small market. And to, for him to show loyalty to that fan base in today's climate, I think... It, it makes him just uh, he, he's appreciated, I think, also to to a degree that some other guys will never be. Um, so, yeah, shout out to Dame. He's been on fire. It, it, it is, you know, I really hope that, you know, Nurkic can come back and 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 impact them. I think Trevor Ariza has been actually playing 
really solid basketball uh, since they traded for him and sent Kent Bazemore to the Sacramento Kings. And so if this team gets healthy and Dame is able to sustain this, which, you know, would one would think is impossible, like the, no one was going to want to play the Portland Trailblazers. Well, that leads me naturally to my next question, Michael, which is, you know, on a recent podcast, we were describing, you know, can the Pelicans sneak up into that eighth seed so we get LeBron versus Zion and Anthony Davis's current team versus former team in that first round 1-8 series. Um, we also talked about the Spurs and maybe the Grizzlies as well, but is it kind of being revealed to us here over the last couple of weeks that the right answer is that Portland should be the eighth seed in the West so you can get LeBron versus Dame in the first round? And look, if he's going to go down, he's going down shooting. I mean, is that what you would rather see than any of these other matchups? Or where would you put Portland on your personal viewing uh, hierarchy? I definitely think I, I personally, I can't remember what you said, but I, I think I discounted them a little bit just because when we did record that they were in a slump and, you know, they were banged up and they just didn't look right. I think this was before the trade for Ariza as well. Um, it wouldn't shock me at all if Portland continued to play extremely well down the stretch here and after the all-star break and they got the, the eight seed. I mean, I think they're only two back in the loss column from Memphis right now. I still would personally like to see the Pelicans above all else, just because I find myself gravitated towards watching all of their games with Zion healthy. I mean, he is just, he's must see TV. And whenever he's on the floor with Lonzo Ball, it's just, it's tremendous entertainment. Um, But yeah, I mean, it wouldn't shock me at all if Portland uh, emerged. You know, they have the best player, I would say, out of all these teams that are kind of floating at the bottom of the conference and we haven't even like mentioned CJ McCollum's name just because he's having a relatively down season from what he's expected to do but you know once they get healthy this is a really good team they went to the Western Conference Finals last year I know that the roster isn't the exact same thing but you know this is a pedigree this is a coaching staff that has been together for a really long time this is a system that everybody knows what to do inside and they're rock solid when they're healthy. So, yeah, Portland, I'm sorry for, for uh, disrespecting you a few weeks ago. Yeah, they, they moved themselves into this conversation quickly, didn't they? I mean, I usually hate this cute story stuff where we have to talk ourselves into the race for the eighth seed, you know, because ultimately, like, how often does that really matter? We have a legit race for the eighth seed in the Western Conference, in part because of injury issues that have just sort of submarine teams that are definitely better than they are. Um, you know, Pelicans for sure included in that and um, Blazers included in that as well. I mean, I'm excited for this little, this run here that's going to be taking place over the next couple months. Um, And I think if Lillard's last two weeks are any indication of how he plans to approach it, uh, I mean, I I think we could see this kind of, maybe not, you know, 48 points a night, but, uh, you know, this kind of torrid (laughs) shooting streak just continuing from him because we've seen that in previous seasons as well, where down the stretch of seasons, he just really turns it up. Um, you know, and sometimes you, you, opponents get a little bit easier, uh, because, you know, some people start to do the soft tanking stuff and, you know, that, that's kind of pushed them along in some previous years, but I could see it happening again. Michael, I want to make one follow-up real quick point here on Zion Williamson. You know, we got some pushback, um, last week or, or even two weeks ago on how much I was hyping Zion and people emailed openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com and like guys come on what do you expect from me all right let's just be like very transparent of course (laughs) there's going to be a lot of zion hype on this podcast this kid is amazing but through six games zion's averaging 28 2 and he's shooting 62 percent from the field (laughs) through six games and he's averaging like six highlights a night so 
He's been the real deal. It hasn't necessarily translated to a, a move up the standings yet for the Pelicans. But as you mentioned, must-see TV. I mean, he's got a couple of pretty high-profile games this week, including a Tuesday night showdown with Giannis. Uh, I think they play the uh, the Pacers on Saturday as well, and the ABC game is kind of screwed up this week because uh, Curry's injured. So I would just say tune, o- tune away from uh, Lakers-Warriors and just watch you know Zion versus the Pacers. I mean, why not? Uh, I think uh, if you haven't fully invested your heart and soul uh, into the Zion experience, you really should. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golver with a message from Mattress Firm. The only thing better than watching your team win is a perfect nap. And Mattress Firm's President's Day sale lets you get a king mattress for a queen price or a queen mattress for a twin price for savings of up to $600. And you can take home a free adjustable base with a qualifying purchase. But you have to hurry. The clock is ticking on this sale. It's ending soon. Isn't it time you saved and slept like a champion? Shop now. Mattressfirm.com mattressfirm.com for the president's day sale all right we got one last question on the blazers this is coming in from tom in london he says he's a huge blazers fan loves watching dame he's been blowing the roof off at the moment and at times like these i'm always reminded of the love that lebron has for damian lillard and i start dreaming of them playing together tom continues i then remember that it's never going to happen dame will never get a ring and the depression hits again regardless I genuinely believe that Dame and LeBron would be one of the most fun and most likable duos in the league right now if it were to happen. So I ask you both this, which other hypothetical duos would you love to see play together right now? Um, Great question from Tom who emailed us. Uh, Michael, what do you think? I mean, do you have a top duo who you would love to put together? And I think his LeBron and Damian idea is kind of like a supersized version of LeBron and Kyrie from a few years ago, right? Where I would say like, Damian's a better, more polished, all-around player than Kyrie was at that time. But, you know, Damian playing that just like offense balancing sniper score type role uh, where he's only facing one defender and so he can just kind of go nuts all the time, uh, you know, alongside LeBron. That is pretty fun. I mean, I think Tom's got pretty good taste here. Yeah. Imagining Dame Lillard in, you know, beside LeBron James, able to isolate, able to... Yeah, attack a defense that's that's compromised by the best player alive right now. Um, that would be that would be a lot of fun. Gotta say, um, I have a duo that came to me instantly because I fantasize about it uh, quite often, and it is Luka Doncic and Nikola Jokic. And wow, I, <laughs> you're bringing the just, Balkans I, back together. I love it. It's just like I don't I don't think basketball could be more enjoyable than than those two on the same team. I like the creativity, the flair, the improvisation, the skill. Uh, like just watching the passes that they would make to each other, watching the cuts, the angles that they're able to just slice you up at. And they're both just like goofy and lovable personalities. Uh, so, you know, defense is whatever. We don't need to discuss that. But just <laughs> offensively, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> That's your team's slogan. Okay. That's on the cover of the media guide. Yeah. I mean, LeBron and Dame aren't exactly like, I don't, like shutting anybody down. But I, 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 like offensively, I just don't know how you would slow these two down. They're so much fun. 
the way they uh, like ever they're, they're just like not cookie cutter which I, I i use that phrase a lot just because i feel like a lot of guys are and a lot of guys go about the game the same way and these two are just so unique in so many ways and watching them complement each other would be the best thing that i've ever seen no, I hear you. I mean, along those same lines, and I'm I'm trying to come up with my perfect hypothetical duo, and I'm going Julius Randle and Taj Gibson. I mean, if you talk about no, just playing. Can you imagine <laughs> <laughs> that this kind of a conversation has happened in New York last summer? Have I got some news for you, Ben? I know it's great. Um, in all seriousness, I've got two nominations here. First. Kevin Durant and Giannis, okay? I want a partner for Kevin Durant oh, wow. that's going to pull out the glare side of Kevin, the angry Kevin, the Rucker Park Kevin, and who better to do that than Giannis, who, uh, you know, is Mamba Mentality, I think, version 2.0 right now. And then likewise, for Giannis, you're taking everything that's great about the Giannis and Chris Middleton thing, and then you're just basically injecting it with, uh, you know, energy boosters in every direction. I mean... You know, I'm assuming Kevin's coming back fully healthy, but the idea that you have somebody who could just, you know, attract at least one, if not two defenders, his direction, every time he's standing there on the wing, the guy who can create his own shot, work from the mid post, uh, you know, catch and shoot when Giannis drives. And then I think defensively, so much length, so much versatility, the kind of uh, lineup combinations you could play with those guys, you could get super small, or you could do like, you know, kind of... Uh, really interchangeable versions like the Warriors were kind of experimenting and, and having Giannis in the Draymond role. I mean, all of it is just like too good to even imagine. Um, and we'll never see it because they can't even play on the same Olympic team together. But that is my ultimate dream pairing. My next generation ultimate dream pairing though, Zion and Ja. Can you believe those two guys oh, wow. were on the same AAU team in South Carolina? Like imagine being, you know, just a random middle school kid. Like, what are you going to do this weekend? Well, we can go to the mall. I know. Why don't we go to an AAU tournament? And you get there, and the top two picks from the 2019 draft are on the same team just running people. One of them is built like LeBron and dunking over your cousin who uh, happens to play basketball for the local middle school. And the other one is like dribbling behind his back with his eyes closed, tossing uh, alley-oops and like throwing in Derrick Rose layups how cool must that have been? And maybe this needs to be a story. Do we all need to just make a pilgrimage to South Carolina and be like, please, you know, let's do the oral history of the greatest AAU partnership uh, that the 21st century has ever seen. Yeah, that would be absurd. Um, I know that uh, Dennis Smith Jr. and Bam Adebayo were AAU teammates and they used to like throw just like three or four assists a game were just like lobs off the backboard and just like teams wanted to quit and just like breaking the spirit of their opponent. So hey, I can only imagine like John Moran and Zion being together. I know this is kind of a weird question to ask, but whatever happened to Dennis Smith Jr.? Is he still in the NBA? <laughs> he is. He is still in the NBA. Yeah. I see him. Uh, I see him warming up before every <laughs> Nick game when I'm at Madison Square Garden. It's pretty sad. Uh, I'm still on the bandwagon. I gotta say, I'm I'm like no. I'm teetering on the edge of it. Yeah, no, I, I gotta. I, no, I have no. to. What is I the argument for being on the Dennis Smith Jr. bandwagon? He's a terrible situation. It's all circumstance. That's what the, that's what the NBA comes down to at the end of the day. Okay. Um, I mean, if if that was the only NBA environment he had been in, I would have been more uh, amenable to that idea. I, I was already nervous before he got to New York and it's one of these things like does it do lasting damage to him like can you like pull yourself out of it I don't know well I guess we'll see um, it, yeah. it wouldn't be the worst 
you know, younger prospect for a team to take a shot on. Um, I mean, do you think he can be a point guard or are you thinking more like just focus on the scoring aspect of it? Cause I, the decision-making stuff with him is what's rough. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Um, it's tough. I, I, uh, I, I mean, talking about the Knicks real quick, when you were mentioning Kevin Durant and Giannis on the same team, I was thinking about whether or not the NBA would make them, in this hypothetical reality, if the NBA would make them go four on five if they ever played the New York Knicks. So it's like Kevin Durant, Giannis, and just two, whatever, two <laughs> replacement players well, versus Michael, five guys from the Knicks. I hate to tell you, if the NBA is intervening here, it's to put these two together on the Knicks, okay? <laughs> like these, This is how they're going to save the Knicks, not how they're going to embarrass the Knicks. I can promise you. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, can I throw one more duo in here before oh, we move on? please, yes. Uh, Trey Young and Ben Simmons. Wow. I, I, we, uh, I mean, during the All-Star episode, we talked about them a lot, and I, I, I basically, uh, actually, it was during the, the pre-Under-23 uh, episode, I think, and I, I chose Trey Young for my list, I believe, uh, instead of Ben Simmons, just for a variety of reasons. But in that conversation, it, it kind of came up just how yin and yang they are and how they're such inversions of each other. And I was watching the Sixers-Hawks game recently that the Hawks won, and Simmons was defending Trey Young. And it was just like, it, it was very bizarre world to watch them interact on the court like that and engage each other. And seeing them together on the same team just like filling the voids that each other's that each other has like it would be that'd be a really good partnership no i really would i mean it would be sort of like diet steph and draymond a little bit (laughs) in in a way um but yeah no i i i'm in i'm open to it and atlanta has been getting a little bit of buzz here this week in terms of hey are they trying to add some pieces to give trey young a little bit of help and structure and i think that would be awesome which makes for a seamless transition, Michael, into our second segment tonight today, which will be a trade deadline preview. Now, everybody knows or should know by now that Thursday is the NBA's trade deadline, 3 p.m. Eastern. There really hasn't been a lot of buzz about the trade deadline, uh, you know, over the last couple of weeks, maybe not as much as normal. I think there's a few different reasons why. Obviously, Kobe Bryant and the tributes that followed for sure. But you also don't have a, a, this year's Anthony Davis, a big-time superstar-level guy who's jockeying to get out of town and just you know creating all this attention, all this buzz and, and trade talk. You also had a whole bunch of superstars who changed teams last year, either by trades um, or in free agency last summer. So that limits you know how many of those guys are really going to be on the move again. So I think you have kind of a limited star power are really at the top. And then finally, there aren't that many intriguing free agents coming up in 2020. So, you know, if you're trying to angle to like get a guy early, sort of like maybe the Sixers did with Tobias Harris last year, where you trade for him and then you just kind of re-sign him. I think that approach or that strategy is also diminished a little bit because there's just not that many guys who you're like so over the moon eager to go chase uh, that you want to do a deal early, right? So, those are some of the factors that are depressing interest a little bit. Uh, but at the same time, you can flip this around and say, well, if the players aren't running tr- uh, the trade deadline this year, like they have in some years past, there are a lot of teams who can talk themselves into being contenders, right? I and mean, we can go right down the list, but I would say, I mean, Milwaukee, Toronto, Boston, Miami, and Philly can all feel like 
they can make the finals this year, or at least make the conference finals this year. They might need some help, you know, in terms of the Giannis factor, some of those other teams, but like they're all in the mix for having a storybook postseason run. And in the West, you're looking at the Lakers, Clippers, Nuggets, Jazz, and Rockets, I think all feeling like, you know, based on their stars or their life cycle as franchises, if things break right, they can make the Western Conference Finals uh, at the very least, if not go further. So that's 10 teams right there that would have reasons to be buyers, uh, you know, before Thursday, try to add a piece here and there. So Michael, what I did for my Washington Post newsletter this week is I ranked those 10 teams in terms of who's most desperate to make a move. I'm going to read my rankings for the listeners and then I, I just want your takeaways. I want your thoughts. I want your arguments, uh, who you think I've overrated and underrated. Um, and, and so here it comes. I think the most desperate team to make a move this week is the Houston Rockets. Then the Philadelphia 76ers. Then the Denver Nuggets. Then the Lakers. Then the Clippers. Then the Bucks, Then the Celtics. Then the Jazz. Then the Heat. And finally... <laughs> The Toronto Raptors. So that's my order. So fire away with your questions, your takes, whatever it might be. Uh, what do you think in terms of the desperation trade deadline index? Yeah. Um, I mean, firstly, like big picture, I think you really nailed it with discussing why there isn't a lot of interest in the trade deadline. And I just want to throw in uh, just a couple of other factors before I, I dig into your list, which is like... I think it's, you know, you mentioned all those buyers. It's an extreme seller's market, like abnormally so. Usually at this stage, you have teams, you have like maybe five or six teams that believe that they can win the championship. As you said, I think there are 10 teams probably that, you know, in-house are, are pretty confident that a move could put them over the top. But what makes it really weird and, and unusual is all these teams that are in the middle class that don't want to sell. So you have all these teams that are interested in either standing pat or getting better or, you know, trying to make the eight seed or, or a push like that. Like in a normal year, a team like the New Orleans Pelicans would be a definite seller. A team like the Atlanta Hawks would be a definite seller. The Washington Wizards would be a definite seller. There's a lot of teams like that. The Phoenix Suns, definite seller. And I don't think, you know, just calling around the league as I've done over the past few days, that's just not the case. So there's not a lot of, like, when you look at the teams that are sellers, they don't have good players. So the teams that want to buy these, the top 10 teams here that you mentioned, there's like only so many players that can actually impact their team and help them win a title. And, you know, they're all kind of scrounging for the select few. You mean, we saw the Utah Jazz trade for Jordan Clarkson. Like that's, it's just like, that's kind of what we're dealing with here. So I think that that is a humongous factor. Um, getting to your list, I don't really have any problems with it. I think it's a pretty solid list. I would just quibble with... What? We're on the same page for the first time ever? Let me quibble. I'm about to quibble. Um, At the top, I got to say that the Sixers are the most desperate team by a a country mile. Wow. More than the Rockets. Oh, yeah. So why do you say that? Okay, so first of all, it's like... The structurally, the Sixers just don't make a lot of sense. And we've talked about this a bajillion times. Like, if they were to head into the playoffs as currently constructed, they're not going to the conference finals. They aren't. And if they do, they're getting smoked by the Milwaukee Bucks. That's just what's going to happen. 
they have to make a move. They have to add a shooter. They have to add another ball handler, you know, as well as Ben Simmons has played over the last few weeks. I think a lot of that is because of Joel Embiid's absence. And so when they've been on the floor together, it's with Al Horford, who we haven't even mentioned yet, it's been uh, somewhat of a disaster offensively. So that has not worked out. And I don't, I, I think they have to make a move because they're a championship or bust team. I think the same is the case with the Houston Rockets, but I have more confidence in them figuring it out for a variety of reasons than I do the Sixers figuring it out. And I just like how the Rockets are built. Like, look, I would I would be much more confident if they added Robert Covington or if they added Andre Iguodala. But with a healthy Eric Gordon, uh, you know, with Ben McLemore playing as well as he has, Daniel House playing as well as he has, uh, you know, PJ Tucker getting healthy. That group kind of figuring it out with their continuity. Russell Westbrook not shooting threes anymore. The defense has tightened up a little bit. I don't believe they're going to move Clint Capella, and I think they need him because of how they play. Um, so I just, I like the Rockets. I think with a few, I, I, this is well known here, but I like the Rockets. Uh, I, I think that they're well built. I think that they, they'll have the best player in, in a lot of different matchups in, the, in a seven-game series with Harden. And he's unguardable. So, uh, yeah, I, I think the pieces complement each other a lot better than the Sixers, which the, the Sixers have a lot of problems. Yeah, I mean, I think the other factor that we should consider with the Rockets and, and ultimately help kind of boost them into my number one spot is just the ownership wild card, right? Like, is he trying to duck the luxury tax? Is he just mm-hmm. like getting frustrated and just like, you know, steam pouring out of his ears? He can't kind of control himself. I think with Philly... Hopefully they don't have those questions yet. And then the other factor is that like, you know, it does feel like Embiid and Simmons have been like kind of, you know, running at the wall and then running into it kind of year after year after year, but they're still definitely younger than guys like Harden and Westbrook. And I think that just kind of increases the pressure factor here. It's like, you know, if you don't have a deep run this year, if you're Houston, um, you know, as we've talked about, things could blow up. So that's, that's sort of my logic there at the top. I think, um, you know, teams like the Lakers, Clippers, and Bucks are more motivated to make moves than you might expect. I mean, even though they've been considered like, you know, kind of the cream of the crop, you know, A-list contenders all season long, the Lakers, as everyone knows, need another ball handler to sort of lighten LeBron's load. We saw him wear down a little bit again at the end of that Blazers game and, uh, you know, and some other recent high-profile games. Uh, with the Clippers, you know, I think that you know, they came in loving this idea of all the wings that they had, you know, and they may want to be able to just, you know, trade one of those extra wings and, and picks or whatever else for another option in the middle. I could see that making sense for them. Um, you know, Tristan Thompson's name came up uh, with, with Yahoo Sports this week. I think he's a, a pretty logical type of piece for them to, to try to plug in. And then with Milwaukee, it's, it's just this idea that like, this is your shot. It's, I mean, everything has gone right for them. The chemistry, the momentum, they've just been smacking everyone, offense and defense. You've got Ilyasova's contract. You've got some picks, you know, can you get greedy, right? Can you find that piece that puts you over the top and that also potentially, you know, uh, you know keep that piece away from some of your other competitors? If they went out there and overpaid to get Covington, I think that would be super smart. You know, keep him away from some of these other teams you might face in the playoffs or face in the finals, and give yourself one more option against you know Kawhi or LeBron 
I would be highly motivated to do that if I was them. And I think the the added bonus of that is, you know, if you're able to get a player like that and use the pick from the Brogdon deal, now you can tell your fans, look, we weren't just cheap on Brogdon. Look, it turned into a, a player who maybe fits an even bigger need than than what uh, Brogdon did for us. So um, those are all teams who I think should be active. What do you think on those teams? Yeah, I agree with all that. I mean, I think that like if you can get a piece that you think can help you, then you should go for it, particularly this year. And I think, you know, Iguodala and Covington, those are just those are the two names that have been floated around the most. But I could see, a you know, a Marvin Williams or a Marcus Morris, those stretch fours that are pretty versatile, who are, well, at least in the case of Marvin Williams, like a really a solid fit in just about any locker room. Marcus Morris may be a little bit more contentious. So that's also a factor. Like if I'm the GM of the Lakers or if I'm the GM of the Milwaukee Bucks, I'm worried about breaking up the chemistry of my team. I mean, these are really tight-knit groups. So it may be really tricky to add a piece or, uh, you know, add a, instead of the word piece, I'm just going to say human being into a locker room, especially with the Lakers. Like, I mean, that that team went through a traumatic event together. They're extremely close because of it. To throw someone in, uh, you know, because he can, you know, shoot three, hit 41% of his open three pointers, but, you know, He's going to be taking minutes from someone who's who feels like they went through something with everybody else. It's it's like that could be disruptive. You don't know. So I would be weary uh, if I was Rob Palenka or if I was John Horst with the Bucks. Uh, I have a question for you though. With the Nuggets, they're pretty high here. Uh, you know, I can see the Clippers and the Lakers and the Bucks being high because we have expectations for them to win a championship. So they are desperate to improve. The Nuggets, though, I'm I'm curious why you had them ahead of some of these teams. Well, I think uh, a couple of reasons. First of all, they're like 34 and 16, right? So very glossy record, right? They look impressive on paper. They've obviously played very well at home, like we would expect. They have a superstar All NBA first team type guy with Jokic. They've got some pieces around him that make sense, right? But you dig in, they're not top 10 on offense. And they're not top 10 on defense, right? So they're going nowhere. Uh, they have to, if they want to sort of build on last season, if they want to make, you know, another step forward, if they want to, you know, try to make it to the conference finals, which I think would be, you know, an ideal goal for them, they have to do something. And then I think you throw on top of that, you've got Millsap's contract. I'm not sure how much of a, you know, sense a, a long-term, uh, you know, fit he would be. You look at Gary Harris, who, you know, his reputation has maybe uh, been in flux here over these last couple of years. You know, could you potentially use him uh, to try to get another piece? Obviously, they've been linked to Drew Holiday a lot uh, in recent uh, you know weeks and months. I just think that they're kind of at an important time of their franchise life cycle where they've been very patient, very diligent in letting everything play out here over these last couple of years. But there's like a pretty firm ceiling to this group as is constructed, right? And I still view them as like a kind of a clear tier behind the two LA teams. And I actually would even take Utah over them in a series, although I know Denver beat Utah last week. Um, so I just think that, you know, the desperate, maybe it's not desperation so much as just motivation. I think they have real reasons to try to make a deal now. Um, and if anyone's going to kind of swing big for, you know, one of these disgruntled, uh, you know, very expensive players uh, you know, in other markets, 
uh, where like it's Kevin Love or someone else like that. I just feel like a team in Denver's position is the type of team to do it, right? Because um, if they don't do it, to me, they're kind of roadkill, you know? Like I think that they're, they're, they're getting knocked out uh, in the second round or earlier. Uh, I would say I hear everything that you're saying. I, I think that when healthy, like, like they're a lot better than what we've seen with, you know, I think when they're healthy, they have a top 10 defense, an elite defense, in fact, and a very capable offense. So um, Paul Millsap has been out since January 8th, and there's I don't think there's a timetable for his return. So that is a concern for sure. But the factor that you know, the X factor here for me is Michael Porter Jr. And that's not necessarily for this season, even though he's been, he's been really good. Um, It's kind of like, okay, we have this, we we drafted this player at I think 14th overall, and he's basically giving us the production of a top three pick. So we have him, we have Jamal Murray locked up, we have Jokic locked up, like, let's not go insane here, let's keep everything together, we know that Michael Porter is going to only improve uh, over the next few seasons, and like, let's make our run next year when LeBron is only a year older, and maybe the Clippers have killed them, killed each other, like, I, I, I think that the, the there's no, there isn't as much pressure, I would say, on Denver to make a move, does that kind of does my rationale make sense here it does i mean porter is definitely a big time release valve because then you know you've got another guy kind of on the come up that you know within two years maybe we're not just talking about this as like Jokic's team by himself right like maybe that's that legit number two guy who we all wanted jamal murray to be but maybe Mm -hmm. he's not quite jumped at that right so if murray's your third best player you could have a really good team uh, in the not too distant future but they're good now right and so this idea that they're just going to sit out this season and just sit on their hands again it would annoy me if I was a Nuggets fan and it annoys me as a, an outside viewer. I hear what you're saying about, okay, maybe they have a little bit more potential. It's just a little bit disguised right now. I don't think that they can beat the Clippers in a series and I don't think they can beat the Lakers in a series, right? So that would make me motivated if I had a whole bunch of young uh, players, a whole bunch of flexible contracts and draft picks, which they have basically uh, you know, at their disposal shake it up, you know, let's make this thing more interesting. Don't just, uh, you know, walk into a fight that you're going to lose in the second round against one of those two LA teams. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, if you're trying to package maybe like Malik Beasley with some salary filler, but like, I think that, I think that when healthy, they're a very competitive, uh, forceful team on both ends. And I guess we'll just kind of see how that all jibes out. Uh, but, like, I wouldn't be dangling future picks if I was Denver because I don't think that whatever I'm getting back is going to put me over the top to beat either of those L.A. teams this year regardless. So just, like, from a desperation factor, I don't necessarily put them ahead of teams that I think should feel it a little bit more, that are more built for today. I mean, Denver is built for today, but they're also built for tomorrow. So they're kind of dancing with these two different timelines that they can enjoy. Um, so that's just, just what I'll say there. I just want this tomorrow to come eventually, because we've been waiting for this tomorrow. You know, they, they don't get out of the first <laughs> round last year. And now it's another year down the road. It's like tomorrow is not promised, Michael. Uh, although Michael Porter Jr. is definitely extending how long we can sell tomorrow as hope for them. 
there's no question. All right, we're going to shift gears and get into some all-star talk. We've been talking about, you know, you know, breaking down the all-star rosters, this and that, and the other thing for like the last week. Um, the rosters were finally announced. Your guy, Brandon Ingram, made the cut. Uh, Devin Booker was left off uh, in the Western Conference. Paul George uh, was left off, and Carl Anthony Towns was left off because of injury issues for those guys. Um, in the Eastern Conference, uh, I wouldn't say there was necessarily major surprises. Kyle Lowry did make the cut, uh, you know, for Toronto, uh, but otherwise it went pretty much uh, as we expected. And I think ultimately, like outside of being pretty upset that Trey Young was a starter uh, when I didn't think he made the list, like I don't think there was that many outrageous snubs. Uh, and I think basically like 22 out of the 24 guys deserve to be there, kind of no matter what, and and you can kind of quibble around the edges. Um, but Michael, that did not stop a lot of NBA players from doing more than quibbling. We saw an absolute outpouring of frustration and angst here, uh, over the last week. I think some of it was justified and some of it wasn't, but well, here's what I'm going to do, Michael. I am now, uh, anointing you, appointing you as judge Pina. <laughs> okay. And I'm going to ask you for your rulings on all the various gripes that we got from the all-stars here over the last week or so. And I need you to tell me, basically, do their cases have merit? In other words, the arguments that they were making on behalf of themselves are being snubbed. Are those legit arguments? And then how well were those arguments uh, made, uh, either by the players themselves or by the people around them? Does that make sense? This is great. I can't wait. This is not contrived at all, by the way. Okay, Judge Pina, I enter your courtroom. (laughs) My (laughs) My first defendant is Bradley Beal. Okay, and he was represented by his girlfriend, or I guess his fiance, actually, um, and his agent, Mark Bartlestein, who really went to war for him. I mean, I think his his fiance was saying, uh, you know, listing off of his numbers in multiple interviews, and at one point said Trey Young didn't deserve to be there, and then she had to walk that back. His agent was saying, look, this guy's loyal. He resigned the extension. His teammates are terrible. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here. Um, that was the, the gist <laughs> of the argument. Uh, did Bradley Beal have a case for feeling snubbed? Uh, and if so, how well were these arguments made? Uh, Beal is awesome. But making the all-star team, like loyalty to your team and re-signing a max contract with them, that, by the way, wasn't even the longest possible agreement you could have signed. So how loyal are you, really? Um I'm unmoved by the notion that it sends the wrong message, uh, particularly if the whole reason you signed with the Wizards was to build something as a team and not worry about individual accolades. So I'm not, no, this is not a great case for me. You know, uh, Beal is rated as one of the worst defensive players in the league. His team only cares about one side of the ball. His team is also terrible. Uh, He's shooting 32% from behind the three-point line and is supposed to be one of the better three-point shooters in the league. And, I mean, Trey Young is just having a better season. So if that's the guy you want to compare yourself to, uh, guess again is what I would say. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky because so many of the things that we just said about Beal in terms of nitpicking his case, it definitely applied to Trey too, and maybe even more so. Um, I think I would have had Beal. I would have tried to find room for him. I mean, I think if anyone really had a beef, it would have been Jalen Brown for Boston because he represents a lot of things that uh, the other players who did make it, whether it's winning, two-way play, you know, about the right things, good stats, I mean, that kind of stuff. Uh, He did feel like kind of an odd man out uh, from that perspective. I was surprised that Beal didn't get the respect factor from the coaches, frankly. I thought he would have just kind of been penciled in because he had been there previously. 
Um, but I do think it's a, a reminder of just how uh, kind of ridiculous this wizard season has been, right? I mean, they're not playing traditional basketball by any stretch. And so, you know, trying to point to his, you know, box score numbers, points, rebounds, and assists like his uh, fiance did, uh, it leaves a lot of the conversation out when you do that. Uh, in terms of the agent's point on the loyalty factor representing the organization, I think things like that are important. I'm not sure that's the deciding factor, though. But I do think it's good if voters are taking into account, you know, a player's whether it's character or uh, his role within an organization or how things are structured around him. Because uh, Beal did resign into a tough environment. Uh, you know, this summer I was stunned that he did it, uh, even though he had kind of hinted that he might do it, uh, you know, a month or two previously when I talked to him about it. Um, but still, like, he is accepting a big burden there. And I think that that is part of life as a franchise player. So I, I give him some kudos there. Like, if I compare him to a Zach Levine, right, there's mm-hmm. a meaningful difference there. Like, Zach Levine is not, like, changing Chicago's culture and, like, you know, like, holding it down. And, like, his, ex- him extending there wouldn't, like, provide definition to the organization or anything like that. So um, I guess from that standpoint, I, I hear what the agent was saying. Um, but I'm not sure that I was, you know, so moved that I'm going to like write Adam Silver and demand a recount. Now, before, before, Ben, 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 real quick. Yep. But before we go on, have you ever seen anything like this with the, uh, the the such force from a player's agent on their behalf for not making the All Star team? No, the floodgates are open this year. Look, everyone's just keeping it real in 2020. Okay, there's no more. Uh, there's no more like subtle shots or you know, uh, kind of frustration at the snubbings. I mean, we heard it from all different corners, whether it was agents, uh, whether it was players themselves, whether it was people close to the players. In general, I'm in favor of the transparency, right? I understand that a lot of these guys come off as whiners, and we're going to get into a few cases here in a minute that are just like (laughs) indefensible in terms of what they said and how they said it. Um, But in general, I think that players do care about this stuff a lot, especially players who have never made the All-Star game before. And I'm, you know, if you care, let us know. And, you know, if you get crushed like guys like Damian Lillard or Rudy Gobert did in previous years when they were, you know, uh, annoyed at being snubbed, you know, I think some of that criticism is unfair because if guys really deserve to be there and they've been snubbed multiple times and there's market factors at play, um, you know, I feel for them, right? Everyone wants to be recognized and acknowledged for what they're doing. Uh, I think, but I also think like if you put yourself out there, then you have to be willing to hear other people, you know, dis- dissect your case and break your game down and, and say why you were a snub or you weren't a snub. And I think in, in some of these cases, uh, you know, there was people who had no business in the all-star game, you know, making a huge fuss and having other people make a fuss on their behalf. And, and that part is maybe what uh, annoys me more than anything. Yeah. Before we get to those people, which we are going to, they have to step into the courtroom in a minute. Um, who would you take off of the uh, Eastern All-Star Reserves and put Brad Beal in? Because when I look at them and I look at the players who are selected, I, I think they're all deserving. But I do, to be fair to Brad Beal, I do want to just add some context here. And like, if if we were to hypothetically swap Brad Beal with, say, Chris Middleton and, you know, put Chris Middleton on the, that Wizards team and put Brad Beal on the Bucks, like... I think we'll both would we both agree that the Bucks are a better team? Would you agree with that? Uh, not necessarily. 
Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, Middleton's had an incredible year. I mean, just a phenomenal season. And his fit with Giannis is really, really clean. Um, they've got some other guys to do some of the ball handling that Bradley Beal does. And as you mentioned, the, de- the defensive gap between Middleton and Beal is so big. I would anticipate yeah, Beal would play harder defensively and be more mm-hmm. uh, locked in. And we've seen stretches of his career where he's actually a really good defensive player. Um, so the context is totally different. But uh, I think, you know, just writing off Middleton as just another guy in Milwaukee system, which some people love to do. I'm not accusing you of that, but some people love to do that. I think that it would be a mistake for sure. Yeah, no, I don't. I, I love Chris Middleton, but then like on the other the other side of the coin is like, what would Chris Middleton look like in this system with the Wizards? Like, is he putting up twenty eight, six, and five or whatever Beal is doing? I mean, like it's just with with like no, uh, you know, getting all the defensive attention every night. I just think it, it is interesting, and I, I I'm I'm coming around on where Brad is coming from, but I just don't like I just don't like the complaining and the whining and. There's a reason that you didn't make it and everyone else did is deserving. So, like, yeah, that's I mean, what it is. I mean, here's the thing. The guy who who is less deserving than Brad for me is Trey Young. And unfortunately, he was voted in in part by the fan vote, right? So there's really not a lot that Bradley Beal can do about that, especially in Washington. And so that's probably where a lot of this frustration stems from. But if you're mm-hmm. saying who was a bigger snub, Jalen Brown or Bradley Beal, for that Trey Young spot, I would say Jalen Brown. All right. Let's move uh, on here to the next case. And that would be Devin Booker, Phoenix Suns guard. And he said he was dismayed by the current state of the NBA, that it wasn't what he remembered growing up in terms of how they valued the type of players who make the all-star team. Uh, strange comments from a guy who's, uh, you know, just recently became old enough to drink alcohol and, and uh, do the other things you can do when you're 21. Um but he's, you know, longing for the NBA of yesteryear, Michael. Was that an effectively made case? How well did he argue it? Uh, Judge Pina is just wildly confused. I don't really understand what his complaint is here. Um, and it kind of goes out the window when you look and see that Brandon Ingram made the team. Uh, Brandon Ingram's team, I believe, had a worse record on the day that the teams were announced, um, so, and they are very comparable games as we went over uh, when we were breaking down our all-star teams. So I, uh, I don't, I don't understand what is happening here. <laughs> I, I, like he was snubbed, I think, and uh, I would have put him on the team as I did, but like, you know, when like we can't just say that it's all about. Uh, like popularity and politics, which was a word that was thrown around by a lot of players. And I don't really even think they understand what they're saying because Brandon Ingram isn't like this super, like he's, he, does anyone, a lot of people don't even know what Brandon Ingram's voice sounds like. (laughs) Like like he's, he's not out here uh, politicking for himself and making a case for himself. He's one of the quietest, most subdued players in the entire league. He looks like he's asleep half the time. So uh, I'm, I'm befuddled by this. All right. First off, fact check. Uh, Devin Booker is 23 years old. So he's been legally allowed to drink for a couple years now, right? But we're saying the, the NBA that he's growing up on is like 2010, right? This is not like that long ago because that's when he was a teenager. I think still in 2010, guys like Chris Paul and Russell Westbrook, who have been all-stars in previous years, who are 
future Hall of Famers who are far more accomplished than Devin Booker is in the NBA, who are playing for winning teams and playing central roles uh, for winning teams and playoff teams, uh, who have been you know very well known uh, as stars off the court sneaker salesmen for a decade. Even in 2010, guess what? Those guys got every benefit of the doubt when it came to the coach's vote over a player who has never won anything in the NBA, like Devin Booker, who still doesn't play defense, like Devin Booker, whose team is outside of the playoff picture currently, like Devin Booker's Phoenix Suns, right? So his argument about politics and all of this, and then trying to say this isn't what he remembers when he was growing up, makes no sense to me, Michael. This is exactly how it's been for the last 10 years. And it's frustrating to me that Russell Westbrook made the team because I think that was where the line was for me. I mm-hmm. thought that spot yep. should have gone to somebody else. Um, but at the same time, like, was I surprised that the coaches gave him a grace year um, and that you know, he's going to be in Chicago uh, you know, doing his typical thing, kind of mean mugging the cameras and everything else. And, you know, he plays hard in the All-Star game, so maybe he'll go out and chase another All-Star game MVP award. No, I was not surprised at all. Not in the slightest. I mean, I, again, I think he is, based on his play and his production and what he means to Phoenix, he is an All-Star player. And I agree with what James Jones said, which is, you know, he's been around all-star players and he knows what they are and how they behave and Devin Booker's an all-star. Okay, I get that. That's wonderful. But to respond this way is where it's just, I'm just thrown for a loop and I don't, I'm not a fan of it. I'm not a fan of all these. You sound like you want to call out the entitled millennials. Like you're right on the borderline of just like freaking out and making this a generational war. (laughs) I can hear it. (laughs) I know. I'm, I'm not a boomer, but, uh, yeah, I'm not even going to just roast myself right now. But <laughs> You're a boomer I, at heart is what you're saying. <laughs> You've got people well, who on your to, lawn and you're angry. But like who wants to – like I, I, I honestly believe that if Brandon Ingram didn't make it, you would have not seen a word out of him. Like do you, can, you, can you envision Brandon Ingram complaining about this and calling out politics and, you know, uh, saying that there are nefarious reasons for them not making – the game like i you can see if i'm a if i'm a head coach in the nba and i'm game planning to stop devin booker russell westbrook and chris paul like yeah i'm probably more so or at least equally afraid of stopping chris paul and preventing him from making everyone around him better and stopping russell westbrook who as i've said earlier has you know suddenly stopped shooting threes he's averaging like 35 a game in this in in the month of january uh, efficiently, basically, again, a nightly triple-double and carrying Houston through James Harden's slump, like, Russell Westbrook still gets it done every night. He never takes a night off, except when it's a back-to-back. Um, <laughs> so, 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 like, it, it just, I, I, I don't, I just don't understand where Devin is coming from besides just him being, uh, like his ego getting the best of him and just not really having the proper amount of self-awareness, I would say. Yeah, I also think it's a preemptive move for next year too, right? Like if you're on the list of guys who were so upset the previous year, that does influence the conversation. Like I think that's a factor for why Rudy Gobert got in this year, right? People do remember the tears. And, you know, I, I think he was a deserving selection the last two years and this year. And he finally gets in because there's a sense that, okay, it's his time. And I think, you know, the nicest thing that you could say about Booker is that he's playing chess here and that he's really just kind of like scheming for 2021. 
And hopefully, you know, he'll actually play for a team that's 500 by next year. That would be a fantastic revelation. I would love to see. All right. Um, that was pretty jerky by me. We're just going to keep moving. Um, Carl Anthony Towns <laughs> said that he has become desensitized to being disrespected because he was left off of the all-star team. Um, does he have a case and how well did he argue it? Uh, once again, just a swing and a miss. Um, <laughs> Judge Pina is taking no guff <laughs> from these young players right now. Uh, the last time Carl Anthony Towns won a basketball game was, let's see here, uh, November 27th, 2019. A 12-point victory against the San Antonio Spurs. Was, was Obama president? obama was graduating high school at the time (laughs) oh my gosh that's Um, a real stat or you're just making that up no that's 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 a real stat i know it was i'm just trying to i'm just trying to underscore it so we're talking about like a span of like 75 days or something he hasn't won a single game yeah i mean he missed a bunch with an injury but he's played in like i want to say two dozen games since then so it's not like he two dozen might be a slight exaggeration but he's played in a bunch of games and we we've seen this guy who you know he's taken a, a lot more threes this year he's been like hyper efficient he's getting to the line a little bit more He's seen his scoring go up. He's actually improved as a passer. Uh, one of the better passers at his position, which he doesn't get credit for. But, like, the defense, man, like, it's so troubling. It's so troubling. I mean, during the stretch where he was out, uh, as I said in the All-Star episode, Minnesota had one of the best defenses in the league. Like, that's not a coincidence. So I can't reward that, and I'm... Uh, you know, when Minnesota, a team that was supposed to have a little bit of momentum this season based on, uh, you know, when they started the year, you know, they're, they're changing their system. They're going to be a little bit more five out. Their offense is going to, you know, catch up to some of the more modern schemes in the league. And that's wonderful. But if you don't bring it on the defensive end every night and you complain a ton and you argue with calls and your team's defense is just atrocious when you're on the floor, like, I just, I can't, it's a difficult thing to say that you're hands down an all-star when there's a lot of other guys that are equally deserving. No question. Look, this is open and shut, okay? Judge Pina, you took the you took the complaint, you balled it up, but you, you shot it out Kobe as you <laughs> sh- shot it into the courtroom trash can, okay? I mean, there are different grades of, okay, your team hasn't won enough, for you to you know be in consideration we're looking at a guy like Damian Lillard his team hasn't won a ton yet uh this season either but it's not like it's been since Thanksgiving since he appeared in a victory you know what I mean and I think for Towns like this is a very frustrating season for lots of reasons it has not gone the way they wanted and Minnesota you know desperately needs to do something here the trade deadline to just kind of change their momentum and direction because it's just been a rough year but that doesn't mean that you get to play the disrespect card um, and and just kind of waltz your way into the all-star conversation. That's not how it works. All right, a couple more. Michael, and I hate to say this, we've got one more all-star, and then we're going to be getting into the Rising Stars roster's complaints. So here we go. Zach Levine, Chicago Bulls franchise player, something like that. He made the statement that there are not 12 players better than him in the Eastern Conference, and that's why he felt snubbed. Does he have a case? And if so, how well did he argue it? Uh, no, he doesn't. And I, I actually, I have a lot of respect for Zach. Um, 
I think that it would have been kind of cool, honestly, to to see him qualify for a game. And it's it you know it, the, the 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 event is in Chicago, and there's going to be nobody on the Chicago Bulls participating in any events, which is I'm great with that. By the way, that's fine. You're okay with that? <laughs> I, think, I think it's better because that team is just depressing. It's backwards. We don't need any representation whatsoever. We're good. sure okay. Fair enough. Um, but I, I I don't know. I think Zach is a good dude. Uh, there are certainly twelve better players in the Eastern Conference than him. How um, many? Let, let's put a finer point on it. Forty? Fifty? I, I mean, I'm not going to be harsh like that, but like there aren't 12 better scorers, right? Like he's a bucket getter. He can score on just about any individual defender. It, just a brilliant offensive force uh, when he wants to be. Um, that is just not, that's just not what goes into what makes a winning NBA player though. And it's striking to me that he may he may equate scoring and his ability to get shots off and get buckets efficiently from all three levels with just overall greatness when you know defensively he is still uh, a rusty door and uh that's like, putting it far too kindly okay uh, the, the rusty door part no i'm kidding um yeah there's a lot more to the game than just scoring and i think a, a repeated uh, factor here if you look at these names Beal, Booker, Towns, Levine they're all guys who can score the ball they're all guys who can uh, function as the main part of an offense they're all guys who have a lot on their shoulders right so they're looking around saying like look I'm on a bad team because I don't have a ton of help and, and most of them are not throwing their teammates under the bus when they're having these conversations but they're saying like what more do you want me to do I'm maxing out here my life is tough and that's true of all number one lead scoring options, including guys who happen to play for winning teams and have had uh, far greater success than any of these players have had. And that's why I think it's just premature from a player like Zach Levine. I mean, I know he's had a, a pretty good you know, stretch here, especially lately. He made a hard push trying to make that roster. Um, but I mean, he's still, he's at, you know, 25, five and four shooting 44%. Um, like I get it like you're having the best year you've ever had and you feel like it's your time to kind of get on the stage but you're just not there yet and can I, can I say one one quick thing about Zach real real fast please do you think he would start on the Boston Celtics I mean I think I, I've said this about Booker in the past like I used to say you know, if he played for a team like the Warriors or the Spurs he would just be a bench scorer and that was earlier in his career um, but I think if you're as damaging as those guys are defensively and you played on a good team with depth I think your role w would definitely change. And uh, that's not to hold it against him. I mean, uh, you know, he goes to Chicago. Like, I mean, I don't see, I don't really know anyone who looked at what happened in Minnesota and thought, oh yeah, that guy is going to be the best player on a good team at any point of his career. I certainly didn't. You know, I, I saw him more as a role, a role player. And I think if he played on a better team, his numbers would come back to earth. And that's part of the reason why I discount his all-star candidacy. Um, but I think, you know, would I want to start him over Tatum or Brown? No, <laughs> they're both more deserving all-star players than he was. I think even Trey Young, a guy who I would leave off entirely of my roster, was higher on the pecking order than a Zach Levine. So uh, if you're asking me personally, I'm fine letting a team like the Chicago Bulls fritter away a season with, you know, built around him. That's fine. Like, go ahead. Somebody else do that. That's not my team. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the, the Celtics hypothetical just kind of hammers home the point for me. Yeah, what are you saying? He's like their ninth guy. Like he's, uh... he yeah, like he's just if you you, <laughs> you can't be one of the twelve best players in your conference and not start on like 
a, a team that is one of the better teams in the conference. That just doesn't jibe with me at well, all. It doesn't really kill, make a lot of sense. Yeah, it kills me too because, look, the Eastern Conference has been letting in non-All-Stars for years, okay? Year after year after year, we get guys in the Western Conference. The snub list in the West is better than the players who make the Eastern Conference. So, like, I actually think there should be a rule that you can only complain about your snubbing if you get snubbed in the Western Conference because there probably would have been spots for a Devin Booker or maybe even a Carl Anthony Towns and certainly a Paul George uh, in the Eastern Co- in the Eastern Conference if it was just the top 24 players regardless of uh, you know geographical destination but you know oh well that's a different argument for a different day all right let's quickly move on to two just ridiculous cases from the Rising Stars game. And you guys might have heard of the Rising Stars game. It's the game that no one pays attention to or watches on Friday night. Basically, the rookie-sophomore challenge. I think they go you know, international versus uh, the USA uh, these days in terms of that format. Matisse Thybul of the Philadelphia 76ers is certainly one of the best rookies in the league. There is no question about it. But uh, his agent, Eric Goodwin, put out a statement that referred to the assistants uh who who snubbed uh uh, matisse teibel in terms of the voting but he had the emphasis on the ass part of that word in capital letters so you know very subtle uh you know communication ability by eric goodwin um what do you think did teibel have a case here and how well was it argued on his behalf should he have been in the rising stars game and should we as a society care about rising stars snubs first of all no i'm like almost offended that this was a thing like no one cares if you make this game or not and you shouldn't either uh take your vacation and enjoy it like what are you even doing why do you want to participate in this event um look i have some stats uh uh, some matisse thibel stats that i just want to quickly rattle off here um his per is 9.6 okay like 15 is league average Okay, so that's just, you can't have a PER of below 10 and complain about your impact. Uh, <laughs> that's the bar we're setting? In this context, in this context, field goal percentage, 39.2. I know he takes a lot of threes and he's been hitting threes, but you're shooting below 40% from the floor. Like, get out of here. Uh, five points per game. Five points per game. And I'm looking at, and I'm comparing it with some of the other rookies who have, who were also snubbed from this, and some of the guys who made it. And like, look, I understand his value on the defensive end. He is a menace on the defensive end. I also watched Saturday night against the Boston Celtics when they had to continuously rotate him off of, between Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, and they had to put Ben Simmons on whoever had it going because Tybal was getting abused. So, like. This isn't Kawhi Leonard yet. We need to, like, calm down. He's really good for a rookie. He's really uh, intuitive. He's smart. He's got long arms. He's aggressive. Uh, He makes life miserable for players who are smaller than he is. But, like, just you're not like Michael Jordan. This isn't an injustice that you didn't make this team. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, I think that we we can grant that he is the best defensive player in the rookie class. We can grant that he ranks sixth right now in win shares, which I do think is a pretty good measure of like all around contributions that might be a little bit more nuanced than just like, you know, PER or points per game, right? But at the same time, Jeez, like shots fired, Ben. Jeez Louise. No, I'm just I'm just I'm trying to make the case <laughs> on his behalf, right? Um if this is the best that you've got though, I mean still, you know, not starting um, you know, consistently. 
you know, barely registering any impact uh, on the offensive end. You're basically a role player. It's it's kind of like the same thing in reverse. Like if you're elite offensively and terrible defensively, you're probably going to get left off these rosters. And if you're elite defensively and you're terrible offensively, you're definitely going to get left off these rosters, right? So um, I did not like the communication method here at all. Let's be a little bit more above board than the assistance thing that came out. I mean, that was... That was a new low until we got to Jackson Hayes, who we're going to discuss here in a second. But, um, I mean, Judge Pina, you had to be a little bit upset with Eric Goodwin here, right? I, yeah, it, it wasn't his best moment. I'll say that. <laughs> to put it mildly. All right, the last one <laughs> we've got is the New Orleans Pelicans center, Jackson Hayes, who told the entire NBA that they could suck his blank after he was left off of the rising stars roster. And, you know, I know you want to break the stats out, Michael. So just FYI, Jackson Hayes is averaging eight points and four rebounds per game for the Pelicans, who, as we all know, are well outside the playoff push. How did you feel about Jackson Hayes' very, I don't know if you want to call it profane or incendiary. Yeah, profane (laughs) and incendiary statement uh, about being left off the rising stars roster. And then, of course, his subsequent apology, which came out where he's, you know, basically bending over backwards, telling everyone how sorry he is and he didn't mean it. And he was just angry and upset and everything else. What did you make of the 19 year old Jackson Hayes? Uh, Did he have a case and how well did he argue it? Uh, He might be my new favorite player. No, no. really? Um, (laughs) Absolutely not. Uh, I will say I had a lot of people send this to me uh, when it happened. So, you knew, like people were just loving this this video i mean i watched it a few times it's pretty hilarious it is vulgar but it is pretty hilarious i could not believe that he did it and uh that you know nobody stopped him uh so shout out to jackson hayes but you know he said in his video that the nba was political and this is something that we we've mentioned before with with devin booker and i thought that that was hilarious because like, is he subtly referencing the fact that Zion made it over him? Zion Williamson, his teammate? Like, I, it was just like, he couldn't have done something more inane than make this video. And, and the content of it was just, it was beyond me. So, yeah. so Zion was, was selected to the roster when he had played, what, like four or five games at the point he was selected. And I know a lot of people were mad about that. Guess what? The only player anyone wants to watch in this game, assuming that Luca and Trey don't play, but maybe they will play, but Zion's the biggest draw, right? Should they even have the game if Zion's not playing? What do you think? Zion is by far, I mean, I guess Luca's playing, right? Well, Luca may play. He's got the ankle injury. Trey Young may play. Last year, Ben Simmons played. I was at the game and it was fun to watch him just run up and down and dunk the ball over and over again. Um, it's just like. I, yeah, of course Zion's going to play. This is all for entertainment. No one, it's not a competitive event. No one cares who wins or loses. Everyone wants to see Zion get lobs thrown to him. That's all this is. For sure. And I think with Jackson Hayes, again, it's tough because when you come out and make a statement like that, you open yourself up to the nitpicking. So obviously your your stats aren't great. You know, we know that right off the top. Obviously you're an immature kid. Like we can tell that came through loud and clear in that video. There's no doubt. Um and you're going to learn from this uh, for sure. But we spent the last three months just berating the Pelicans for how bad their defense was when Derek Favors was not on the court, right? I mean, wasn't that the leading storyline of like, 
they're so horrible on defense that they've probably dug such a big hole that even Zion's not going to be able to to help them dig out of it, right? Who do we blame for that, Michael? <laughs> if, if Derek Favors is injured, who is the primary suspect in the Pelicans' atrocious defense? Obviously, you know, it's the the center who's in there playing a lot of minutes, who's 19 years old and doesn't really know how to run an NBA defense yet through no major fault of his own, but it would be Jackson Hayes. So again, like if New Orleans has like a top five defense without their veteran anchor and Jackson Hayes is like, you know, completely, you know, changing the playoff picture in the Western Conference, like I get it. Like, okay, come out here and make a statement. But you're averaging eight and four and getting smoked on a night to night basis. And this is this is your reaction to put that video out. It's crazy to me. And I do salute the Pelicans for cleaning that thing up pretty quickly. Um, that was a mess, man. Like if I was a casual fan down there, I'd look at that and say, yeah, you know, uh, I don't know about this group, you know? Yeah. And I just want to say also, this goes for Jackson. This goes for Matisse who didn't speak. His agent spoke on his behalf. This goes for, uh, Devin Booker, Carl Anthony Towns. If you have a problem, I want to hear, like, you have to say who deserves, who you deserve to make it over. You have to take someone off the team. Like, I don't want to hear the complaints. Anyway, like if you're Jackson Hayes and you see Eric Pascal in there and you're like, I'm better than him, then say that. Like be like own it because there's only so so many spots. That's how it works. You'd have to take someone off the team. So I want to hear out of your mouth when you're making these videos who you are better than. Why is this a political process? That's what I want. I love it. I love it. You want more beef. You know, I'm okay with these guys expressing it. Like I said, just make better arguments on your behalf because some of these guys had strong arguments they could have made and some just got up on some high horses and then just fell right out of the saddle, you know, just fell sideways off that horse and just took a header onto the ground. And that's a little bit disappointing. Michael, we have run long here, uh, but we have made it to the end of another episode of Open Floor. We thanks everyone for hanging, uh, you know, with us as we got through a bunch of, you know, kind of catch up information here over the last couple of weeks. Keep emailing us, guys. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. We will be back later this week with a trade deadline recap. The episode might go up a little bit later than usual, but it will for sure be up this week, running down all the action or inaction after Thursday's deadline. Michael, they can find us on uh, Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Michael is on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Victor. Peanut. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. I'm on Twitter at Ben Golliver. And be sure to go to my Twitter page and sign up for my Washington Post weekly newsletter. It's free. It has a nice rundown every single Monday for you. All right, Michael. Until later this week, when the entire championship landscape will be different, maybe. I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben. <laughs>